and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the explosive report from ProPublica based on a leak of IRS data, which reveals how the richest 25% Americans pay little to no taxes and on an average pay 15.8% in taxes on adjusted gross income compared to 37% the American worker pays. Joining us is David K. Johnston, the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist who has uncovered so many tax dodges, he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. The co-founder of DCReport.org, where he has an article, Expert Explains How an Income Tax System is a Massive Subsidy for the Super Rich and White Men. We will discuss how Bezos, Musk, Soros, Buffett, Gates, Murdoch, Zuckerberg and Bloomberg are making more and more money than ever but are paying less and less taxes than ever. Then, with Biden on his first overseas trip to meet with Boris Johnson, then the G7 leaders, then the NATO summit, followed by a summit meeting with Vladimir Putin, we'll speak with Charles Kupchin, who was Director of European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as Special Assistant to President Obama for national security. He joins us to discuss how Trump divided our allies and united our enemies and that Biden is trying to repair the damage by doing the opposite. Then finally, we will speak with Lawrence Douglas, Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College and a contributing opinion writer for The Guardian where he has an article, Republicans are out to create the rigged voting system they claim to be victims of. We will discuss how the January 6th coup continues with Trump's big lie being weaponized into law by the GOP as they rig the next election to perpetuate minority rule. And joining us now, David K. Johnston, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning investor reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he has uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. And he's the co-founder of DCReport.org, where he has an article, Expert Explains How Our Income Tax System is a Massive Subsidy for the Super Rich and White Men. Welcome to Background Briefing, David K. Johnson. Thank you for having me on again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, David. And the ProPublica report that your article references is quite a bombshell. It shows how the super rich have gotten richer and more and more rich, and at the same time, they pay less and less tax with Jeff Bezos of Amazon paying no income tax in 2007 and 2011. Tesla's founder, Elon Musk, paid uh, zero income tax in 2018. George Soros had three straight years without paying federal income tax and so forth and so forth. So this is not news to you, I'm sure, David, but... Do you think it's news to the American people? Is this penetrating, or do they already know that something's wrong in terms of inequality? Well, you've asked the exact right question. First of all, this is the most important tax story in the 55 years that I've been writing about taxes. The way I became a front-page staff writer at the San Jose Mercury while I was still a teenager was primarily writing about taxes in a way that made sense to ordinary people. And... Uh, the very wealthy in this country have worked very hard to make taxes seem impenetrable. They're not. Now, this data is the 
tax information, the data off the tax returns of thousands of the richest Americans, not just the few that were highlighted in their first piece. And ProPublica will be publishing many stories, I'm sure, about this. Here's the problem. Americans have been have become passive and they have stopped believing in democracy because the comments on my piece uh, which has been republished at Raw Story. The comments I've looked at at other news organizations that wrote about this are, well, you didn't do nothing new and you can't do anything about it. And why are you surprised? Instead of how do we stop this? Why should someone who's making $50,000 a year, and by the way, only one in four workers makes more than $50,000 a year. Why should somebody making $50,000 a year be taxed heavily by our government and someone whose income is in the millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, in a few cases, multiple billions per year, pay little or no tax, not just as a percentage of their income, but in absolute dollars. Now, one possibility here, Ian, it's a far out possibility, is that Americans have decided they wanna work hard to subsidize the rich. Uh, you know, that's what the Brits do with the royal family. Everybody pays taxes so that one family can live this unbelievably lavish lifestyle and vicariously other people can enjoy it. I hope that's not what's happening, but the attitude of Americans, man, we knew that. There's nothing we can do about it. That, that's just, it's un-American. I don't know what else to call it. And people should be ashamed and embarrassed to have that reaction to say, I'm powerless, I can do nothing. I live in a free society, but I have no power. That's just nonsense. Well, there was a little thing called the American Revolution, wasn't there, David? Yeah, and it had to do with taxing. And, and let me tell you something even more important than that. We live in the second American Republic. The first American Republic, almost everybody should recall from their junior high school or high school days, uh, was the Articles of Confederation. It had no power to tax and it failed because a government without taxes is not a government. Or as Edmund Burke, the founder of modern conservatism wrote in 1793, the revenue of the state is the state. So why did we create our constitution and the second American Republic? The purpose of that constitution, what makes it different from the Articles of Confederation is that it allows us to tax ourselves. We created this country for the specific purpose of authorizing Congress to tax us. But we nobody ever agreed to a system that says working people will be taxed to subsidize billionaires. And again, I'm speaking with David K. Johnson, a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes in inequities in the U.S. tax code. And he has uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. And he's the co-founder of DCReport.org, where he has an article. It's also at Raw Story. Expert explains how our income tax system is a massive subsidy for the super rich and white men. So we know that President Biden is focused on the tax gap. In other words, collecting the uncollected taxes, which are enormous in this country. But there was a very telling uh, exchange uh, before the Senate Finance Committee subcommittee chaired by Senator Ron Wyden, where he was questioning the commissioner of the IRS, Charles Reddick. And Wyden said, 
you know, it's, it's so wrong that the wealthy always seem to skip out on their obligations. You have a better chance of being struck by lightning than being audited if you're a partner in a partnership, Senator Wyden said. And the IRS Commissioner Reddick responded, we are outgunned. Is that what it's all about? Well, that is a key element of it. Uh, for years now, the Congress has been cutting the IRS. Think about this for a moment. W what is the sales force for a hospital? It's surgeons. So why do they lavish attention and money and perks on surgeons? Because that's their revenue source. They're the ones who bring the money in, right? IRS auditors, particularly corporate auditors, are the sales people, the revenue people for the government. Um, the highest paid corporate auditors at the IRS make about $150,000 a year. They bring in on average almost $20 million a year. Now, if you owned a business and your salespeople brought in $126 for every dollar you paid them, you'd be out hiring more salespeople like crazy. Not what Congress did. They have been getting rid of those auditors. They also impose this utterly corrupt rule that when a corporation is audited, the IRS has to tell the company months in advance, here is what we are going to look at. And if auditors find something else, unless there's unquestionable evidence of criminal fraud, they are not allowed to pursue it. So they, they may come across millions of dollars in taxes that are owed and they're, they're told to look the other way. This has become a totally corrupt system. And by the way, we'll get new data in a few days, but a year ago, the IRS reported that for the year 2020, among the highest income taxpayers, people making more than $10 million a year, and there's uh, about 30,000 of those in the country, uh, only seven were audited, seven. That is virtually nothing. Now they may revise that number in the new report and come up with a higher number, but it's, it's very few. But the real problem, Ian, isn't in the enforcement side. Much as we need to enforce the tax laws and we need to send people to prison who engage in repeated tax cheating, the real problem is that we have written the law. Our Congress has written the law to create all these legal means by which very, very wealthy people can live tax-free, they can borrow against their wealth. Ordinary people can't do that because they don't have enough wealth. But if you have billions of dollars and you want 10 million a year for your lifestyle, you just borrow it from yourself and then you have no income. And when you die, do you think the government gets to collect then? No, you can give every single dollar of your wealth to a private foundation controlled by your children or your spouse, uh, your widow at that point or widower, and provide jobs for family members, uh, and the government doesn't get a dime. On the other hand, under the Trump tax law, only one in 13 people is able to get any benefit for charitable gifts. 12 out of 13 people, if you give to charity, you give to your church or your synagogue or United Way or the Humane Society, you get no tax break for that, but very wealthy people get unlimited tax breaks for this under the way our law is written now. Well, there is this phenomenon, right? The wealth protection industry. <laughs> Remember the child molesting sex trafficker, Jeffrey Epstein, he got paid, what, $185 million by the hedge fund, Leon Black, yes. for supposed tax avoidance information, which yes. must have been... Supposed, 
suppose it is the key word there. Uh, honest to goodness, I, uh, Ian, I think all the it, all the external indications are that Jeffrey Epstein got what the Russians call compromise on people, and then he extorted them for money. Right. Uh, we, well, we I brought it up as a sort of a joke, but the yeah. but the, the the reality is the wealth protection industry is not a joke. No, and it's global, and it is uh, very sophisticated. And it's not just the United States. It's every major wealthy country. And it has absurd rules. And I'll give you one of my favorite examples of that. Um, the British Virgin Islands, beautiful place in the Caribbean, great place to go for a vacation, especially if you live in, as I do, in western New York in the winter. It also is home to the largest supply of aluminum in the world. And if that aluminum was actually there, uh, the British Virgin Isles would be uh, mountains of shiny aluminum three miles high. There's no aluminum there except the aluminum foil in people's kitchen drawers. But for tax evasion reasons and tax avoidance reasons, it's the biggest aluminum center in the world. And the same is true of all these other places that the uh, British journalist Nick Shaxon calls treasure islands. I wish I had come up with that. It's a brilliant name for this. All these other tax havens, there's all this money in them and in many cases shrouded in secrecy. Um, we've published a DC report, what I think is the best estimate of how much illicit untaxed money is sloshing around the globe. The US economy puts out about $20 trillion a year. The illicit money sloshing around the globe is somewhere between 40 and $50 trillion. So major league criminals, and uh, drug lords and business people who don't want to pay their taxes essentially have unlimited resources to defeat the government, the point that Charles Reddick, the IRS commissioner, made to the U.S. Senate. And, of course, the Russian oligarch Deripaska, he has his, his interests in the, the British Virgin Islands, and he's the aluminum king responsible for the... Personally responsible for the murder of about 40 people. He also lent Paul Manafort, what, $30 million, which <laughs> he, he never got back. But then he right. forgave Manafort when the, the 2016 Republican platform under Trump was changed to become Russia-friendly. So there's a whole other story there, obviously. And, and, you, and think about the numbers you're talking about for a minute. To someone like Deripaska... $30 million is like a $20 bill in your or my pocket. That's how little it is. We're talking about levels of income and continuing streams of income. It's not just that you have a fortune, you got to manage it. It's you have businesses and enterprises that are bringing in more money every day. And there's no way you can ever consume it. So the money loses all meaning. Well, it is estimated that, what, $120 billion a year is lost to the U.S. Treasury from offshore tax evasion? That's right, just from that. On the other hand, the government collects, and I think this is accurate because I've written about this for years and looked into it, the government collects 99.7% of taxes from wage earners. If you're a wage earner, the government takes the taxes out of your check before you get it, and they are very efficient at that. But if you own your own business, if you're like Donald Trump with 500 businesses, some of them world-scale businesses, there's no check on you. So unless you're audited and a very sophisticated auditor has enormous amounts of time to go through hundreds of enterprises. In fact, 
Um, I've talked to IRS agents who've described to me people who have as many as 6,000 business entities and unraveling the economics of those is incredibly expensive and difficult. And of course, what happens if you start doing that? Well, pretty soon the very rich person calls up their US Senator and their Congressperson and maybe the White House and says, I'm being harassed. The IRS is harassing me. When all they're trying to do is figure out from your thousands of businesses, whether you honestly paid your taxes. Well, just to, in closing here, David, the, the ProPublica study that you're writing about and that we hopefully is gonna get a lot of attention Overall, the richest 25 Americans pay less tax, an average of 15.8 of adjusted gross income than many ordinary workers do once you include the taxes on Social Security and Medicare. So that's the bottom line. We're talking about people like uh, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Rupert Murdoch, Mark Zuckerberg, Michael Bloomberg, and, of course, the richest man in the world, Amazon's founder, Jeff Bezos, who's about to go off into space with his brother. Right. And so the thing to keep in mind here is Congress can create any tax system it wants. It can create any set of rules it wants. Don't be cynical. Instead, write your congressperson and say, you know, fix this or I'll vote for anybody else. I'll vote for not you. And, if, <laughs> and, and let me tell you how, how powerful I can be. In 1969, Joseph Barr, who was Treasury Secretary at the end of the Johnson administration, about long enough to have a cup of coffee and go up to Capitol Hill, revealed that in 1966, 155 wealthy families, they made over a million dollars a year, paid no income tax. Congress got more letters about that that year than about the Vietnam War, and they changed the tax law. If people stop being cynical and recognize they have power and demand change, we'll get a system where wealthy people actually have to pay taxes. And there are many ways to do this. Uh, I'll give you one simple idea I've been toying with. Congress could pass a law making tax returns public. They used to be public. Or it could pass a law that says everyone who has more than $10 million of positive income, who pays less than 30% of their positive income in federal income tax will have their tax return made public. I think a lot of people who are paying 15% would decide keeping their tax return private is uh, well worth paying another 15 points of income tax. <laughs> and we know how hard Donald Trump fought to keep his taxes <laughs> private, right? Right. Uh, and, except for the one that I got, that's right. Except the one that showed up in your mailbox, right. Well, David K. Johnson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with David K. Johnston, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States, and he's the co-founder of DCReport.org, where he has an article, Expert Explains How Our Income Tax System is a Massive Subsidy for the super rich and white men. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing Biden's first overseas trip to repair the damage that Trump did in dividing our allies and uniting our enemies. You are listening to WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned at noon for Midpoint Thursday with Shelley Reback and Janet Sherberger. It'll be a great show. 
Look forward to having you here. And again, thank you for supporting and listening to WMNF, your community conscious radio station. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. In my heart, I have. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Charles Cupchin, who was Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as a Special Assistant to President Obama for National Security and is the author of Power in Transition, The Peaceful Change of International Order and How Enemies Become Friends, The Source of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. Welcome to Background Briefing, Charles Kupchin. Good to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Charles. And obviously, President Biden has a, an ambitious domestic agenda, and he's leaving at a time when that agenda appears to be a little stalled. How would you describe his foreign policy agenda? Because he's meeting first with Prime Minister Boris Johnson in Cornwall. Then he's meeting with the G7 leaders in London. And then he goes to Brussels for the NATO summit. And then he goes to Geneva to meet with Putin. I think it'll, in general, be a, a good week for Biden. The Putin meeting is, is the, the toughest one. Uh, and I'm not expecting any major breakthroughs on U.S.-Russia relations, but at least there, there'll be a, an effort to create a constructive dialogue. And I think that, you know, Biden will be a rock star of sorts because Europeans are breathing massive sighs of relief that Donald Trump is no longer the president and that you have in the Oval Office someone who believes in the Constitution of the United States, the rule of law, liberal democracy, uh, and in multilateralism and international teamwork. So you can expect lots of smiles and backslaps and a, a strong sense of, of camaraderie. I think Biden's challenge is, is really twofold. One is to make sure that there are more than smiles and backslaps, and he's going to He's going to have to show that these meetings pay off on the pandemic, pandemic recovery. I expect that there'll be an announcement to get millions of doses of vaccines into lower and middle income countries. And there's got to be a discussion about climate change, not necessarily a, a great breakthrough, but a, but a sense that there are more ambitious targets laid out, more investment in, in green technology. I think you'll see discussions of, of Russia and China and how to deal with countries that uh, many Western democracies see as, as troublemakers. So there's got to be a concrete set of, of deliberable, deliverables. Then I think this, the second key challenge, and this comes back to the way you pose the question, Ian, is to draw connective linkages between what he's doing abroad 
and his domestic agenda. Biden has explicitly said, I'm going to pursue a foreign policy for the middle class. And that's because he understands that in some ways, Trump was catering to a primal scream in the electorate that said, too much world, not enough America. And so I think Biden is going to try to say to the American electorate while he's abroad, I'm pursuing this agenda on pandemic recovery, on climate change, on trade issues, on cyber issues, on Russia, because this is how it advances the interests of average Americans, given how delicate, uh, to put it nicely, the the situation, the political situation in this country is, I think he will be bending backward to demonstrate to Americans that engagement abroad is in the interests of working America. Well, I think the big contrast with Trump, of course, Charles Cupchin, is that Trump coddled and indulged despots and kleptocrats and Biden has made it clear in the case of the Russian despot and kleptocrat Putin that he's recently said he's a killer which apparently got Russia upset but apparently when he met with uh, Putin during the Obama administration he'd in contrast to George W. Bush who looked into his eyes and saw his soul Biden said to Putin's face I don't think you have a soul and Putin replied with a smile, suggesting that, you know, you understand me, or we understand each other. <laughs> so uh, that's different. He's also meeting with another, another kleptocrat who's in trouble now because one of the mafia bosses in Turkey has gone public with all kinds of political dirt about ties to organized crime and drug trafficking in the top ranks of uh, Erdogan's administration. So they're meeting on the sideline of the NATO summit what do you expect? Let's start with Erdogan. What do you expect to happen there? Sparks are going to fly, aren't they? Well, you know, you're right to say that Biden is going to is going to follow a different path when it comes to to autocrats. And, you know, you now have somebody in the White House who will stand for American values and stand behind human rights and cozy up to democratic leaders abroad, not autocratic leaders abroad. On the other hand, I think Biden is a pragmatist more than he is an ideologue. And as a consequence, he will speak openly and forcefully to Erdogan and to Putin. But he will also attempt to establish a working relationship, a dialogue that tries to move the needle in a positive direction. Is it going to be easy? No. Is it necessary? Yes. Why? Because Turkey matters, right? The, the United States relies on Turkey for strategic access to many parts of the Middle East, uh, access to, to air bases in Turkey with Russia. Even though we disagree about Ukraine, we disagree about human rights, we disagree uh, about European security writ large, we agree about the need for strategic stability. The arms control agreement with Russia has been extended. There are common interests on the pandemic, on climate change. So my sense is that, you know, as a pragmatist, Biden is going to agree to disagree with Erdogan and Putin and potentially others on those issues where there isn't agreement, but see if he can't fashion a uh, a relationship 
with difficult players that at least heads in, in a positive direction. And again, I'm speaking with Charles Kupchin, who was Director of European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as Special Assistant to President Obama for National Security. He's the author of Power in Transition, The Peaceful Change of International Order and How Enemies Become Friends, The Source of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the world. So in terms of Putin, which is the last of his of Biden's meetings in Geneva, this summit which Biden called for, and there's been some criticism saying that in itself is a gift to Putin. Biden also, he also took sanctions off the former East German Stasi spy turned head of Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and that's upset the Ukrainians, and I think as a kind of compensation to President Zelensky, uh, Biden's going to be meeting with him later, I think in July, at the White House. Is there anything going on? I hear from ex-KGB people, and of course you can't trust them, but they're saying that in many ways Putin is being challenged at home from the right by people like his national security advisor, Nikolai Petrushev, who's a real nationalist hawk, is Biden giving, not, I wouldn't say he's giving concessions to Putin, but it seems like he's helping him out, particularly over Nord Stream. Is there anything to the possibility that as bad as Putin is, there are worse people waiting in the wings? You know, I, I think there is something in the wings. That is to say, there is a, a shift in the dynamic that has emerged over the last few weeks. Because the first few months of the Biden administration, U.S.-Russia relations really hit a new low. They, they went to rock bottom. Uh, there were new sanctions exchanged. Americans expelled Russian diplomats and the Russians expelled Americans. Russia put 100,000 plus troops on the border with Ukraine. We were really on a dangerous, slippery slope. Then, you know, all of a sudden, Biden calls Putin. Next thing you know, our Secretary of State meets with the Russian Secretary of State. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, meets with the Russian counterpart. Then Biden says, you know what, I'm going to waive sanctions on the main company building this Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So something's happening. There is I would say, uh, an effort to push the relationship with Russia, not necessarily toward reset or rapprochement, but to make it less toxic. And I think that there are two issues at play. One is that, you know, Biden wants to focus on the domestic agenda. He's got to. And that domestic agenda is enormously complicated, especially because the Republicans don't seem that they're going to play ball on any front. And so did he really want to see a Russian invasion of Ukraine? Do we want Russian tanks rolling across the border? I don't think so. And then Putin does face a set of domestic constraints that are new, in part because the, the opposition has been in the streets. So both in some ways may have a domestic incentive to see if they can't do better. 
And then the other issue that's at play, and, and here, Ian, I'm speculating, is China. You know, I think for Biden, the big elephant in the room is China. China is changing the 21st century's geopolitical landscape. Russia is not. And I think that Biden may be exploring the possibility of trying to put some distance between Moscow and Beijing. And from Putin's perspective, he has to be growing uncomfortable with China. They're, they're in a very close relationship, China and Russia. But if I were sitting in the Kremlin and I were watching the Chinese economy grow, China invest in AI and high tech, Chinese military growing by leaps and bounds, I would be growing uncomfortable. So I have a feeling, and again, this is speculative, that part of the, the play here is a discussion about the rise of China. Well, I think that the rise of China, I think in many of our analysts got it wrong. The, the assumption always was that as China becomes richer, it will become freer. And Xi Jinping has turned that on its head, has he not? Uh, he has. And, you know, the, the guiding assumption was we let Russia uh, into the G8, we let China into the WTO, and eventually the forces of the middle class and liberalism will win out. Well, guess what? It didn't happen. China is getting richer, its middle class is getting larger, and Xi Jinping is cracking down on Hong Kong, on Uyghurs, on domestic opposition. And it works in part because the middle class is benefiting from China's rise, and as a consequence, doesn't want to rock the boat. But we now do face a world which is irretrievably interdependent, irretrievably globalized. Germany's largest trading partner is China. It's not France. It's not Italy. It's China. Uh, and as a consequence, you know, Biden's effort initially to say this, this is a, a, a moment of a defining clash between democracy and autocracy. We're going to win the 21st century. China is not uh, you know, I'm, I, I think that, that we need to figure out how to, uh, how to foster dialogue across these ideological dividing lines. Because there's no going back to a decoupled, two-block world of the Cold War. We're past that. But just to touch on Putin again, is there a strategy then, assuming that Putin is behind these moves, to go after, with cyber attacks, to go after sort of two iconic American symbols, if you will, gasoline and hamburgers. They went after Colonial Pipeline and they went after the biggest meatpacking company in the country. It, what's going on there, do you think, Charles? Is that to get leverage ahead of this meeting with Biden? Uh, Putin is a bad boy. He's a spoiler. He's a disruptor. He loved Donald Trump in part because Donald Trump divided America and divided the West. Biden wants to unite the West and he wants to try to unite the United States. Putin wants to keep causing trouble. And that's why I'm not expecting him to stand down on interfering in Western elections through social media, on potentially hacking into American computers on potentially using the gangs in Russia 
to shut down pipelines or meatpacking plants. I, you know, I, so I think Biden is going to have to be guarded, right? He's going to have to make clear, both in what he says and his body language, that Putin is a tough customer, that we are holding him at arm's length, that we will punish him for his, uh, his interference in our affairs, but at the same time, try to build a floor beneath the relationship and, and see if, they, if he can't move the ball forward. But I, I am not expecting any breakthroughs. I am not expecting that after the meeting in Geneva, Putin stands down on cyber attacks or withdraws Russian troops from Donbass. We are not there. Well, of course, the <laughs> the main purpose of foreign policy should be to unite your allies and divide your enemies, and Trump did the opposite. So there's obviously a big repair job underway, isn't there? There is. And, you know, the, the, uh, Biden ha- will have wind in his sails. There will be an outpouring of happiness uh, that, you know, the American president is now coming to the UK and instead of there being protests against him, there will be throngs of people cheering him on. And, you know, that's a, that's a, for me, it is a, a, a very positive development after four years in this country that were as scary and disruptive as anybody I think could have, could have imagined. But let's not, Let's not get complacent. We are not out of the woods. Given the divisions that are persisting in Congress, given that most Republicans still think that Trump won the 2020 election, we have our work cut out for us as a country. Uh, and I think, you know, I speak personally. I simply hope that, that Biden is not just a detour from Trump, but that he represents the new normal. But I cannot say that with a great deal of confidence, given how much division there remains in our country. And the disruptor-in-chief, even though he's an ex-president, controls the Republican Party, so we're not out of the woods. I thank you very much for joining us here today, Charles Cupchin. My pleasure, Ian. Good to be with you. Again, I've been speaking with Charles Cupchin, who was Director of European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as Special Assistant to President Obama for National Security. He's the author of Power in Transition, The Peaceful Change of International Order and How Enemies Become Friends, The Source of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing how the January 6th coup continues with Trump's big lie being weaponized into law by the GOP as they rig the next elections to perpetuate minority rule.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lawrence Douglas, the Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College and a contributing opinion writer for The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. And he has an article at The Guardian, Republicans are out to create the rigged voting system they claim to be victims of. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lawrence Douglas. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Lawrence. And as outrageous and brazen as the Republicans are being, where they clearly would rather cheat than compete, they appear to be getting away with it. What's your overall sense in the big picture here, get heading into 2022? Um, well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, they do seem to be getting away with it. And, uh, and the critical thing is, you know, they don't need to get away with it in all that many states. And uh, particularly, you know, I, I think we should really be troubled uh, about the possible consequences of what they're doing in uh, 2024, that is on the presidential election, because I really think that the Republicans almost work for the assumption that they can't win uh, presidential elections fair and square. You know, it is possible for them to win congressional elections uh, through gerrymandering. Uh, but when it comes to presidential elections, the numbers kind of are really stacked against them. And that's where I think these efforts are really directed at. I think they're really directed at trying to alter the results in 2024. And they're passing laws like the ones in Georgia, which will mean that the Brad Raffensburgers of the world, the decent Republicans, Secretary of State, who did his job and who resisted the pressure from Trump. He had the President of the United States calling him and leaning on him and telling him to find 11,000 votes, just one more than he lost the state by, in a mafia-like kind of extortion. And he stood up to the President and he's been vilified ever since. And people like him, according to these new uh, rules that are being written, or these new laws that are being written in various states controlled by Republican legislatures, they get rid of the Brad Raffensperger's, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, that's one of the things that I think is the most disturbing aspect about these laws. I mean, so in a sense, there are two different aspects to them. One is... Uh, attempts to uh, suppress the vote, and particularly to uh, suppress the vote of black voters, who we know vote overwhelmingly uh, Democratic. And, you know, in a certain respect, there's nothing all that new about uh, Republican efforts to suppress the uh, vote of uh, persons of color. Um, what is a little unusual here, and uh, particularly ominous, is that they're using a lie uh, in order to justify these acts of voter suppression, namely that there was fraud in uh, the 2020 election. But then I think, uh, as you point out, the even more disturbing aspect than the uh, attempts at voter suppression is the lowering of the uh, bar for uh, challenging election results. So if for some reason uh, the Republicans aren't successful in in uh, removing enough people from the voter ranks in, let's say, a state like Georgia, they've lowered the bar for at least challenging the results should, uh, let's say, the Republican presidential candidate lose that state in 2024. That's very, very uh, distressing. So going back, though, to the original question, Lawrence, you've already seen that Joe Manchin doesn't want to touch the filibuster, which means that SB1 the For the People Act is dead in the water in the Senate. Now we learn today from 
Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell that he's against SB4, HR4, the, the John Lewis Act, which Manchin has been working with Republican Lisa Murkowski on. So he's at least got the patina of having a bipartisan bill. Now McConnell's against that, which means that would never get to the filibuster threshold, not that any of these ever will. So everything is happening in the opposite direction, and the president is off in Europe for a week. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, it will remain to be seen whether um, there can be any kind of movement of trying to uh, federalize some of these uh, election um, uh, laws. Uh, as you point out, it seems unlikely. It seems unlikely that uh, you'd have any kind of uh, success in passing these laws without getting rid of the filibuster. And we see that we have, you know, people like uh, Manchin and Kristen Sinema uh, unwilling to to budge on that, at least for now, un, unwilling to budge on it. And presumably they're not going to change about that. I'm not even sure if federalizing the laws um, would entirely address the kinds of, of initiatives that we see that these various states are uh, engaging in. You know, it might ultimately come to uh, courts and court challenges you know, should should the, the most extreme of these laws be passed uh, in in different states. And so, you know, we might be back in a kind of similar situation to what we saw in 2020, in which uh, ultimately courts would be called upon for the purposes of trying to protect not just really the integrity of the electoral outcome, but in a sense to protect um, the very fact that we live in a democracy. And again, I'm speaking with Lawrence Douglas, who is the chair of law jurisprudence and social thought at Amherst College and a contributing opinion writer for The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown of 2020. And he has an article at The Guardian, Republicans are out to create the rigged voting system they claim to be victims of. And Trump, according to your book, uh, Lawrence, he did go, but he didn't go. I mean, he has inordinate influence for a former president. He's not painting pictures of dogs like George W. Bush or building Habitat for Humanity houses uh, like Jimmy Carter. He owns the Republican Party and they are lockstep behind him. And seven out of ten Republicans believe that he won the last election. So that is the sad state of affairs. And as you point out in your article, Lawrence, there's an Orwellian Orwellian quality to all of these shenanigans going on now where the Republicans are laboring to create the very rigged system they falsely claim to be victims of. So again, they seem to be moving ahead. I did an interview yesterday with a researcher who who've, has been tracking the Koch brothers' activities for decades and we're looking into the extent to which the Koch brothers' network are influencing Joe mansion and she pointed out that they're using what is known in the trade as the thank and spank strategy where they thank joe mansion for standing up to the democrats on the filibuster but then they spank him and warn him not to vote for the pro-union act etc and and infrastructure and all the stuff that he has sort of wimped out on so is there something going on here that has a lot more to do with money and politics than ideology and party loyalty in other words the fact of the matter is that our legislators are basically telemarketers they spend most of their days dialing for dollars and the democrats have a real problem 
the Republicans get their money from plutocrats who share their ideology. Democrats get a lot of their money from the same plutocrats uh, who don't necessarily share their ideology, and, but at the same time they get their votes from ordinary working people. So the Republicans have been extraordinary in the way they peeled off working Americans to somehow believe in trickle-down economics and that people like Donald Trump are their saviours. But this problem with the Democrats, which critics often say is a, is a kind of weakness, and I feel that maybe the weakness is to do with the money and where it comes from and to the extent that they may be compromised by their donors having to appear to support working Americans at the same time appeal to their donors. Well, obviously, you know, for anyone to maintain any kind of political, for any elected official to remain, to maintain any kind of uh, political viability in the United States today, they require uh, big money. And, uh, you know, I think it's hard to overestimate the degree to which money, and particularly money coming from huge donors, um, you know, has a, a distorting effect on, on American politics. You know, in this, in this regard, you know, the Citizens United decision from uh, 2010 remains, you know, one of the most, uh, you know, damaging decisions that the Supreme Court has uh, rendered, uh, certainly rendered probably, you know, in the last uh, 50 years or so. With regards to Joe Manchin himself, you know, it's, it's hard for me to really kind of speculate on what's going on in his head. You know, sometimes people like to play maverick. Uh, certainly we know that uh, party discipline in the United States is not particularly strong, at least particularly within the Democratic Party. And, uh, you know, when you're a Democrat for some place like West Virginia, uh, you know, he's very conservative. And in certain regards, his politics are closer to Republican politics than they are to progressive uh, Democratic politics. But again, it also sort of underscores, I think, one of the kind of pathologies of our system today, that this one individual could have such a ridiculously outsized role in uh, kind of uh, dictating the, the kind of constitutional political uh, destiny of the United States. You know, at issue is not really a small thing. It's really uh, the question of whether we remain a, a democratic nation. You know, if you effectively... Um, uh, eliminate it um, if you install rule by minority, which is what the Republicans are trying to do. Then basically, we have ceased to be a democracy. But if you put aside the the lofty arguments of Mansions about bipartisanship and honouring tradition, and look at where the rubber meets the road, the influence of the Koch brothers is very clear in West Virginia with their fronts, American for Prosperity, and their priority, at least the, the remaining brothers' priority, is to stop the For the People Act because it gets rid of dark money. And this is the main vehicle, following the disastrous Citizens United decision, this is the main vehicle through which plutocrats control American politics. They control the, the agenda and they buy the politicians. And that is their priority, to kill the, the bill which Manchin has done. So, yeah, no, you're absolutely right in, in, in that regard. And, you know, again, some of the the uh, the rhetoric that comes out from Manchin and from uh, Sinema as well is, you know, this idea that, um, well, the filibuster is worth preserving because this goes back to the framers who uh, enshrined the filibuster for the purposes of trying to uh, 
to make bipartisan a crucial part of our politics. And of course, all that is just historically wrong. I mean, the filibuster had nothing to do with the original uh, design of the Constitution, and it was uh, really just a um, badly designed device created for the purposes of trying to uh, put a closure to um, to debate. And we also know that the filibuster has a long and illustrious history of being used for the purposes of defeating uh, legislation that is meant to uh, advance the interests, particularly of black Americans. So, given the, this sad state of affairs, it's a hard way to sort of weaponize the idea that this is a struggle now for American democracy itself. That is objectively the reality. But I don't think the average voter knows what the filibuster is or cares about the filibuster. So how do you make this a powerful issue? It is because I think it's objectively clear that the future of American democracy is, is under threat. And if the Republicans win in 2022, they'll just make it even more difficult for Democrats to ever to win. And as you say, they're really laying the groundwork for 2024 in any case. And that's it. We'll have a one-party state. And that'll be uh, the end of American democracy. And that sounds like hyperbole. But I think it's fact. So how do you get from hyperbole to fact? Right. Uh, again, you know, I, I think the, I, I, I don't want to necessarily kind of um, engage in the sort of uh, the profound pessimism that your listeners might um, find deeply dispiriting, though. I think I, you know, I share, you know, your, your very, very deep concerns. And that's where, um, you know, one of the things that we've seen, at least in 2020, is we did see uh, the courts as stepping in and uh, really kind of defending um, democratic processes against um, the attempt of Trump to basically steal the election. And uh, I, I suspect we're going to see much of the same thing happening again. Now, the thing that would be really interesting and uh, potentially very damaging is if the Republicans, let's say, control the House. You have been listening to the background briefing with Ian Masters on WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for Midpoint Thursday with Janet Sherberger and Shelley Reebok immediately following NPR News. And as always, thanks for listening and supporting your community conscious radio station, WMNF, Tampa, St. Pete, Clearwater, and around the world at WMNF.